This is Pod, a podcast that explores inclusivity, diversity, and how to find common ground with just about anyone, all through a scientific lens. I'm your host, Jeffrey Boyer Chapman. I'm an actor, podcaster, model, and guest judge on the hit TV series, RuPaul's Drag Race. As a Black queer man, I know firsthand that with deep inclusion and acceptance from others, I can show up not only as my best self, but as my whole self. Creating a safe space is the foundation of authenticity, and everyone is welcome here. Welcome to The Includer Pod. In my experience, the same tone or dialogue that's understood as confidence or strength in a man can often be understood as aggression when it's coming from a woman in an interview setting. There can be a feeling that you need to be modest or downplay your accomplishments or your needs. Now that I've reached a point in my career where I'm sometimes on the other side of the hiring table, I've noticed that when it comes to salary discussions, men are much more likely to just offer a number with confidence, while women will typically qualify it by saying, oh, this is what I'm making now, which is the only reason I'm offering the number, or saying this would be ideal, but I'm flexible. I really believe that employers should be doing a lot more to diversify the hiring process, because the process of hiring someone is long. And I feel when employers are trying to hire quick, they're not thinking about bringing someone in with a diverse background. They're looking at strictly experience and whether the person fits into the company. But I think looking at only experience hinders how employers can be more diverse. And experience is only one dimension to hiring someone. So if everyone in your company looks the same, How are you going to serve those clients, those customers, and really understand them if you don't have someone in your company who represents them? It's no secret that the workforce is in the midst of major shifts as companies come to terms with their own blind spots. Across sectors, companies are hiring diversity and inclusion specialists who can champion for equality across their firms. Recent research from the Harvard Business Review showed that 90% of the firms surveyed consider it a top priority to increase gender and racial diversity within the company. But none of the firms showed a preference for hiring women or minority candidates. What's more, in STEM fields, women candidates needed a higher GPA than white men to be awarded the same rating in the hiring process. As this research clearly shows, despite good intentions and a desire to engage in more inclusive practices, many major companies are still falling into the traps of internal bias and prejudice. So how can we continue to challenge employers to actually be more inclusive in their business operations and walk the walk rather than just talking the talk? Today on Includer Pod, I'm sitting down with someone who knows all about this. Christy Hawbegger is the Executive Vice President, Communications and Chief Inclusion Officer at Warner Media, which means she helps further diversity, equity, and inclusion across the workforce to reflect the audiences they serve. After graduating from Stanford Law School, Christy founded Latina Magazine in 1996 to promote diversity in the world of fashion, beauty, and lifestyle. 
She later entered the entertainment industry, working as a producer on movies like Chasing Poppy and the Oscar-winning romantic comedy Spanglish. Prior to joining Warner Media, she spent 14 years at Creative Artist Agency, also known as CAA, where she helped the agency grow its diverse roster by more than 1,400%. She's a founding member of Pororistas and currently serves on the board of several nonprofit organizations striving to increase diversity and inclusion. I would just love to hear about how and why you decided to pivot away from law and move into the entertainment industry. Well, first, let me start out with, I got a really marketable degree in philosophy in college. And so, you know, instead of opening a philosophy store, I decided to go to law school. And, you know, when I was in law school, I was able to take some business school classes because I actually fell in love with business. And, you know, I thought I was going to be a social justice crusader. I thought I was going to be an immigration lawyer or a landlord tenant attorney. And I had a professor who would encourage me to take some business classes because he said, you know, why do you want to be an immigration lawyer? And he taught like corporate law stuff. I said, oh, you know, I want to help my community. I want to give back. And he said, well, you want to think about getting into a boardroom. You know, you can help one person at a time if you're a public defender or an immigration lawyer. But if you want to help the lives of lots of people at a time, get yourself into a boardroom where decisions are made that impact thousands of people. I was like, oh, I never thought about that. And it turns out I loved business. I loved marketing. I loved a class on entrepreneurship. I took a class on leadership. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, maybe I'm in the wrong school, <laughs> you know, because I'm in the law school. But I wrote a business plan for a plan for a magazine that didn't exist, which was this idea for a Latina magazine which was a complete knockoff of Essence, right? Because like friends of mine had grown up reading their mom's copy of Essence. And I always thought like, why, you know, I wish I had something like that, you know, but for us and never thinking I would have anything to do with it. But the 1990 census had come out recently and you're not old enough to remember this, um, but there was this like Time Magazine cover and it was like, you know, this is going to be the decade of the Hispanic, which apparently got rescheduled. Um, (laughs) But... It inspired me. And this professor said, you know, this is a really good idea. You ought to think about doing this. And I thought, well, I mean, if I try it and I fail miserably, I can be a lawyer. Like I have a law degree, you know, so that was, you know, that gave me a lot of confidence. And amazingly, it came together. I ended up partnering with the founder of Essence Magazine, who invested in Latina and we launched the magazine in 1996. So I really, you know, it wasn't that I moved from law there. I just, I never even really started law. I got a law degree and it's great because it makes people think, you know, I'm smart. (laughs) It helps. Yeah, it helps. And I do, by the way, it turns out actually the rest of your life is contracts. Like the rest of your business is contracts. So it actually is, is, is handier than you realize. But uh, my family was always disappointed that I couldn't do anything about traffic tickets. (laughs) One, one social justice movement at a time. Right. So inevitably you moved from, uh, from uh, running a founding Latina magazine and to working at CAA. Actually, there was a stop in the middle. There's, I, I worked on two motion pictures as a producer I decided to move into entertainment. It was interesting because in the magazine business, you know, after like the 2000.com boom, like you're like, oh, wait, the internet's going to change publishing. Like you could see it coming. It was like seeing a freight train coming, you know. You know, it was interesting because I knew that on some level, Latino was important because like it gave us a chance to see ourselves and a chance to celebrate our beauty and our culture and 
But I also realized that nobody but Latinas read Latina, if that makes any sense. And I wanted to think about other kinds of storytelling. So I had an opportunity to work on a couple of movies. The second one took almost two years and and it was this movie Spanglish. Oh, of course. Um, So I was a executive producer on that film. And after having a new product, you know, every 30 days, like you do in the magazine business to work on one movie for two years, (laughs) you know, which kind of comes and goes in a weekend was like just not the right thing for my metabolism. So that's when I went to CAA. And what were you doing at CAA specifically? So they brought me in to try and build a Latin business because they really didn't have, you know, everything from, well, first of all, I had a lot of relationships with people, right? You got to remember, like, I, you know, put Jennifer Lopez on her first magazine cover back in 1996. I'd known her since, since you know, before Selena, right? Or I'm like, yeah, I know Shakira. We had a party for her recently. Or, yeah, I've worked a lot with Salma Hayek. There were a lot of touch points that I had, and they, you know, really didn't have a very sort of focused, diverse roster. And so... I was brought in to try and help that and, you know, build that. And I really felt like that was my, like, broad curriculum in how television works. I also realized, like, the importance of representation. I don't mean that, like, in the, like, you know, representation matters. But I mean, like, who represents you and how, you know, a lot of these big agencies especially are sort of gatekeepers, right? Mm -hmm. And they're gatekeepers about... Who gets in the room? Who gets to read the script? Like all of those things. And I really wanted to change who are the agents, right? Who are the gatekeepers of of talent? And by the time I left, I realized there were 36 Black agents and executives, like across, I mean, across the organization. And like, you know, there were two when I started. And like, I like making that shift I do think is important because that actually changes, you know, people sign people and represent people that they have something in common with or that they, you know, grew up with or were big fans of. And so if you don't have agents of color, if you don't have female agents, right, you're not going to be able to have as much access to the talent that you want to represent. And so sort of ended up running the strategy for all of that for the agency and became a very senior executive there. Um, and ended up there for 15 years. So it was quite a, quite a long run. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, I can speak firsthand to that, that working as an actor for the past 15 years, I never have once had a um, an agent or a manager who was a person of color. Never once. And as you know, it's still a very shallow pool to choose from, even in Los Angeles today. Um you know, I think it's something that we it's it's quite obvious if you if you are paying attention, but not many people are necessarily willing to call it out for what it is. I know I know firsthand that it takes a certain type of individual or personality to be willing to speak truth to power and call out institutional injustice and inequity when we can identify it around us. But where do you think that you where, where did you draw from from within yourself to be able to uh, speak truth to power and call out the what you saw in front of you for what it was? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think, you know, particularly in Hollywood, you have a lot of like really good people who aspire to be inclusive. And the thing I say a lot is that, you know, everybody yearns for transformation and nobody wants to change. 
you know, and everyone agrees. Like, oh, you'll get a hundred percent agreement. Oh, yes, should be our should our industry be more diverse? Yes. Is our audience more diverse than this? Yes, yes, yes. But then when I say, I always say, like, oh, I, you know, like you want transformation, but you don't want to change. And you don't want to have to do things differently than the way it's always been done because that's hard and it's risky and you know, all that stuff. Um, but it's also comfortable, right? And I think people will choose. I don't know. I mean, I, I I think I have a personal sense of mission about this, but I don't need you to share my sense of mission or social, social justice. I want you to want to win. And as soon as you recognize that having a more diverse and inclusive workforce, a more inclusive and diverse client list, a more diverse and inclusive set of storytellers in this world, that's going to be how we win. I mean, it is a nice thing to do, but I don't you don't need to do it for that reason. You need to do it because you want to win. Because if you're doing it because you think it's a nice thing to do, you won't sustain it, in my experience. You know, we changed the intern program at CAA many years ago. We changed it because people like me are like, wait, what? how do we get, you know, how do we get a pipeline? And like the intern program was really, you know, 98% referrals, meaning like someone recommended you. And so you can imagine, well, who's referred? You get, you end up in the same ecosystem and you don't get any new blood. And we know that diversity drives innovation. Like that's how you get new ideas and new thinking and new perspectives. And I, you know, was one of the people agitating and moving to build a real intern program that people would apply for that would be competitive. You know, and I used to joke, I'm like, we're not even getting good white kids. We're just getting people that people know. You have to acknowledge that talent in this world is equally distributed, but the opportunities haven't been. And there's just no chance that all the talent grew up in Beverly Hills. Like there's no <laughs> chance, right? There's just no, like just mathematically, that's not the case. Yeah, contrary to popular belief. Yeah. And so, you know, when we built this intern program, I remember a colleague of mine came and we finally, like we had to hire someone to go do university recruiting, Ruben Garcia, who's still there at a much bigger job now, but um, we had to hire someone to manage the intern program. Like if you're going to make a real internship, like a, with a curriculum and a program and structure, you need someone managing that. You know, like we had to invest money to make that happen. But it was so interesting. I had a colleague come up to me and he was like, Christy, hasn't this diversity thing gone far enough? And I was like, what are you talking about? Have you looked around here? What do you mean? And he said, well, I just don't know that my son's going to be able to get into our intern program because we had... 4,000 applications for 80 spots. And I was like, no, he can get in. He just has to be as good as everybody else. And I, I'm actually kind of compassionate in a way because if you grew up in that business as this colleague had, you grew up with the idea that this is actually one of the perks of the business, that you can get your kid into it. And so for him, it is actually, it feels like a loss. Because I can't do that now. My kid has to apply and do an essay and like do an interview. Like, I'm like, yes, yes. And that's going to make our workforce better. Mm -hmm. And it did. And so, of course, you know, the interns suddenly looked like the best and brightest. And the interns were representative of the population. And like, that's because you, when you choose the best of the best, you get that incredible like variety. So, but I, I, I'm compassionate to the person who feels like there's a loss in a way, because for him, it was a loss. 
you just touched on this, but I'm hoping that you can expand on it because people ask me all the time in interviews why I think that it's especially important that we see diversity in entertainment and media. I want to hear from your perspective, if you can expand on why you think there's such importance. There's economic justice, which is why all fields should be open to all kinds of people, right? And there's Again, the idea that talent is equally distributed but doesn't have access to certain pockets of career opportunity is sort of, you know, an injustice of its own. But I think what we do in our business is quite different because, you know, what we do in our business matters in a very different way. It shapes what people think of themselves, what other people think of them. And, and you know, I always point out there's almost, I think there's almost 8 billion people on the planet. Well, most of them will never come to the United States but they see our movies and our television and we tell them what a hero looks like. The fact that we've never seen a, you know, a Latino superhero and we're going to have our first one next year, which I'm super excited about at DC, you know, like, are we telling our young people that we don't think you're capable of greatness, you know, because there's no superhero that looks like, you know, like in some way we are saying that. So I think, you know, what we do in this business matters and in an outsized way, because when other industries integrate the workforce, it doesn't necessarily change the product. In our business, you integrate the workforce, the product changes. So when you were uh, in this position at CAA and Warner Media approached you to fill the position of the inclusion department, did that position or department even exist prior to you stepping in to fill it? No, it didn't. And it was, but it was interesting because there was an inflection point in the the organization, which was that AT&T had bought the company and AT&T is like, you know, the 10th largest company in America. And they have a huge DEI team and a fantastic chief diversity officer. And they were, you know, they're very focused on it. And again, you know, if you're AT&T, you can't, you got to reach everybody. Like you can't say we're going to only reach this certain population. You know, you got to be able to reach everybody and you need a workforce that looks like everybody because you have 250,000 employees, right? Like they better come from all communities. So they approached me and I thought it was an interesting opportunity because Warner Media is just about 30,000 people. And CAA at the time was, you know, close to whatever, 3,000 people. If I thought I could have a fraction of the impact on a place 10 times the size that I think I may have had at CAA, I would be thrilled. I felt like I could have an impact on a large organization that, you know, controls a lot of our our business. And so that was the most compelling part for me. When Warner Media approached you with this idea, did they explain to you their intentions as to why they were wanting to begin this, this division? No, I just think... Um, you know, I, I remember I met with John Stanky, who's the CEO. And by the way, I kind of passed on the role a few times. Like they called me a few times and I was like, listen, I don't have any HR experience. Like I'm a business person. I, I think you're thinking about this wrong because it like reported into HR and and it was it was definitely not the sort of comprehensive way that I would want to approach this, you know, massive opportunity. And um I met with John Sankey, who's actually very funny. And I, like I said, I'd passed on the job a couple of times and I, he literally sits down and he's like, I understand you don't want this job. And I was like, no, cause I think you're thinking about it wrong. And I, you know, I think I didn't you know, I loved CAA. I was super happy. I wasn't like, I got to get a job, you know, 
But I think that gave me the freedom to say, well, here's what I would do, right? And I think you have to think about not only the workforce, but who are the storytellers you're in business with? And what is the marketing communications? And how do you think about that? And how is the organization perceived in the in the world? And and I also, you know, was able to quantify here's, you know, here's my rough math on the value you've missed by not fully delivering on these audiences just in the United States alone. I, I was like, if I were to ever make a jump like this, I, would I have the resources I need to build what needs to be built here? And he said, you will have everything you need. I was like, really? And he said, yeah, you'll have everything you need. And I said, well, this could cost, you know, I came up with a, what I thought was a crazy big number. And he was like, he was like, we have 25 billion in free cash flow every year. I bet we can afford this. Okay, you're right. You're right. And so I I got to spend the time saying, like, you know, from the ground up, how would I approach this if I wanted us to fully realize this? So I divided, you know, I did a listening tour and I went around the company and I talked to different people. I, I went to every major office in every major city. I went to London. I went to New York. I went to Atlanta. I obviously spent time in LA. I did a lot of town halls and just, I wanted to understand what the needs and the opportunity was. And also just like, what's happening now? Like, I know there are people doing things, but I, you know, I always said like, you know what? You don't want to be engaged in a series of random acts of diversity. I felt like you had to bring together these kind of four pillars. One of them is um, the workforce, like your current existing workforce, who works there, right? And that's everything from like who works on the creative side, which is actually not the majority of people, right? You know, there are people who work in taxation and finance and legal and, you know, everything else. So workforce opportunities writ large. Then you have to bring together the pipeline, like how, what are all the pipeline programs and how do you get people into the, not only into the organization, but into the industry? Because as a steward in a large organization in the business, you have some responsibility to make sure that happens. And hopefully they end up in your pipeline and, you know, and then the the content pillar, right? So what kinds of stories are you telling and how do you tell them authentically? And so I was able to hire like four SVPs, one over each of those pillars. And I was, I mean, I really is like the the Justice League of of these issues. So I hired the woman who ran um, diversity and inclusion at Fox and she's doing the workforce piece. And Karen Horn, who ran all of these programs at NBC Universal for many years, and she's running all of the, the pipeline pro and the programs piece. And Samantha Nara, who was an SVP of, of comedy at Fox, is running all of the content because she's been on the other side of the table. She knows what tools, you know, our executives and the creative community need. But she also used to be an agent, which is also helpful just in terms of like all the relationships. And then James Anderson, who's a 20-year veteran of the company, is running marketing communications. And actually, he's gotten a bigger job since then. He's now running because I, I have communications now, too. So he's running all of like corporate communications. But it really matters because like how do we market? How do we show up somewhere? What do we program at Sundance or CES? Like how do we do those things matters because if we don't do those with a voice that represents, you would get a very you know, incorrect impression of the company that we want to be. Right. Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head with the how part, because I think that so many people can see the issues that we need to address, but they don't necessarily know how. I love the term that you used, um, a listening tour, that you went around the country on a listening tour. And I'm sure it sounds like you gleaned a lot of valuable, priceless information and wisdom um, in that process. So my question is for 
for employers that have the best of intentions, but still struggle to implement true inclusive hiring practices, what do you think is holding them back? Well, I think there's a lot of things, right? One is, um, I think that the ecosystem has only been built kind of recently. So I would say that most people want to do the right thing and they want to hire more inclusively. And people will, Ava DuVernay says this a lot. If I need to make one phone call, one extra phone call, I'll do it. If I got to make five extra phone calls, I don't know. You know, like you you lose me after three, right? Like, and I think a lot of what we're doing in terms of the tools we're building, but in, you know, in my past, like when I was at CAA, I built this thing called the Amplified Database, which was a database of every writer of color, you know, that we could find that was not just CAA clients, but writers of color by by level, by genre, by ethnicity, by gender. Because if you're like, I really need an Asian female comedy voice, mid-level supervising producer, you know, who is there? And they're like, people would call me and it's like, oh, if we didn't have anyone like that available, I don't want to tell you not to try and find that voice. I, you know, started keeping lists, lists upon lists upon lists, you know, and like, you know, some, we'd have clients call me, you know, I really want a Native American comedy writer. And I'm like, oh, I don't have one available. Like the, you know, the, the ones we have are booked, they're on long-term shows and, you know, but I don't want you to not hire a great Native voice. Here's three or four people I know about, right? And I would do this. So I made this database that I published that had about 900 folks on it. And it was people with literally, you know, credits in the last five years in U.S., you know, television. And it was television writing only. And what was really interesting about that is that I was like, if I have to go cut people's meat for them, because you, I, I just want to take the excuse away. You can't say I couldn't find any. Here they are. Here's their managers. Here's their agents. Here's their lawyer. Like you can find them. And, and I think the idea that I want to do this, but it's hard. Well, I can't, you know, do much like to, in terms of making you do it, but I can certainly make it easier. As I expected, Christy had some pretty insightful things to say about diversity, inclusion, and bias. While many people may agree that we need more diverse representation, few are actually willing to feel the discomfort required to make these changes. This gives us insight about some of the barriers that are still standing in the way of more diverse representation on screen, behind the scenes, and in the world at large. We need leaders that are willing to do the hard work instead of just gathering in a boardroom discussing the idea of change. Hearing Christy say she measured her life in impact was truly inspiring. Judging by the work she's done so far in her career, she definitely walks the walk. Listen to learn more about the incredible impact she's had and what changes she hopes to see in the future. From your perspective, could you describe some of the progress we've seen in terms of inclusivity and representation in the entertainment industry since you first started your career? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, my gosh. It's I mean, listen, I, I feel like I'm still having the same conversation 25 years later in many ways. You know, I really I, I was just thinking about this the other day. Like, I remember when like Ricky Martin hit the scene in like 1998, I think, or something like that. And I was like, oh, this is great. Like, everybody's going to get it now. I'll never have to explain this again. 
know. I remember when the original Queer Eye for the Straight Guy came out and I thought yes. the same thing. And you're like, oh, this is it. We're done. We got it. We got it. Everybody got it. Yeah. Like, I'm an optimist by nature. If I didn't think that we were capable of great transformation as individuals, as organizations, as societies, I wouldn't be there. And I think we actually do have to celebrate. One of the things that's really, I think, hard for people is acknowledging things that aren't yet perfect. You know, the thing about the perfect being the enemy of the good, right? And so people say, well, we're not there yet, but we're trying. And I'm like, yeah, but if you don't applaud people for the progress that we're making, I mean, look at the on-camera representation, you know, of African-Americans in television now. It's a, it's, it's greater than that of the population, right? I mean, that's amazing. And we're still way behind on Latinos and Asian-Americans, but hey, that's, that's great. You know, we released this 105-page report of like all the things we're doing. And it's, you know, it's incredible because you're like, I couldn't have imagined this. But, you know, when you look at the statistics in there, you're like, wow, like this is this is so much better than a few years. ago. I mean, you could look at that. But I think the more important measure in some ways is the qualitative stuff, which is do I have to explain why still? On the flip side of that, on a personal level, how have you seen unconscious bias or discrimination play out in your own life and career? Because I'm sure you must have. Can this you- is only an hour-long interview. Are you like, what are you talking about? Where am I seeing? I mean, you know, it's it's I mean, it's also very hard to separate, like, you know, being a woman, being Latina, being, you know, I tend to assume the best of intentions of people. I I often see ignorance, but I assume that you're not just mean, you know. <laughs> And I try and approach these situations. I mean, I have so many funny stories. And I will tell you one of the things that's happened to me. Well, one story I've like told a lot is, you know, when I was selling advertising and I was like running a magazine and I went to Detroit and I visited all the automakers, right? I went to see Chrysler and Ford and General Motors. And every one of them was buying more advertising, which meant we could, you know, publish more pages. And like, you know, I was like, this is a great day. And I go back to my hotel. I get the ice bucket and I go down the hall to get a bucket of ice for my room. And as I'm walking down the hall, this woman stops me and says, oh, wonderful, dear. Are you bringing those to all the rooms? And I was like, no, no, just my room. Like, what? Like, you know, and I mean, the number of times I've been confused for staff, actually one of my favorites, and this has happened to me a couple of times where I was speaking at an event, like a banquet or a dinner, right? Or I'm a keynote speech at a conference. I have had people ask me, and one time, this was great, actually, I was, excuse me, can I get, you know, blah, 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 right? Like, can I get something? As I'm walking through, because I'm heading for the stage, you know what I mean? Like, I'm literally walking through, everyone's seated, but I'm walking through because I'm going on stage. And I remember this one table asked me, could you get us more water? And I said, sure. And I literally went over to the side, you know, there's like a whole setup of water pitchers and I grabbed a water pitcher and I brought it back to the table. I'm like, here you go. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to say a word because there is nothing I could say that is better than me walking on stage right now. Because I'm like, you know what? Like, I I can't spend my time teaching you. I can't be like, you know what? Here's why you should think about that before you like make an assumption. It's funny because I I think all the time when things like that happen and and they don't happen to me as much as I've gotten older, which is kind of interesting, but I think like 
you know, I need to use that as fuel. I need to use that as inspiration because until that woman in the hallway sees me and thinks, wow, that looks like an entrepreneur. I bet she's a CEO or maybe that's a lawyer or maybe that's an executive at a big company. Until someone sees me and says, that's equally likely as her working as a housekeeper, I like, I'm like, we're not done yet. Like until that woman sees me and says, that's what a, a, an executive looks like. So I'm like, okay, this is part of my job in this world is, is in my own life changing what people see and think. What a job. It's well, incredible. you're doing it too. What are you talking you know, about? You know, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I understand it and it's very intentional. I can tell that it's very intentional with you as well. It's a, it's a quote and affirmation that I've used for literally over a decade from Martin Luther King Jr., which is to be used for a purpose greater than myself. And we don't yes. always necessarily have control over what that change or what that purpose necessarily is, but you can feel it. You can feel it when it's in motion. You know, you, you touched on it earlier. You mentioned, and I've, you've also been quoted uh, as saying that progress is not necessarily about random acts of diversity, but more so about creating a deeper sense of systemic change. So how can we begin to look at inclusion from a more foundational perspective and promote a more diverse workforce and a workplace in the first place, instead of trying to work backwards and fix the broken system? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I it's funny, I had dinner with some folks in the like venture capital space. And I was saying like, this is, you know, they're part of like founding companies, right? And yeah it is much easier to make that part of the DNA than to try and stitch it on later, right? Or patch it up afterwards. I mean, I think like you have to start with that belief of the thing I said, which is that the talent is equally distributed, right? And if all of your quote unquote talent that you're hiring comes from one zip code or one economic class or one ethnic group, or one gender, like you know that you're not getting the best. And I think there are a lot of tactical things, right? And like people know a lot more about, you know, the Rooney Rule. It's not just about having one person in the slate who doesn't look like the others. It's about having two. I mean, I say this about, you know, when I was at CAA, we really got a lot of momentum after we had a few people who were willing to make that beachhead in that department where there maybe had not been a lot of diversity. And so, you know, I say this thing about like, one's a token, two's a minority, Three's a good start. Oof. Three's a good start. Three's a good start because yeah. the problem is when you're the only one, if you're one out of 25 people in that department or in that organization, it's really hard. It's lonely. People, you you get a lot more of the diversity tax. You get scrutinized. You get, you're burdened with the, hey, we need you to go do college recruiting. You know, your other colleagues are out selling product and we need you to take your time to go do this, but you're not supposed to miss any of your sales goals. Like there's so much stuff that comes with being the only one. Like the lonely only is a really hard place to be. And that person often has very high turnover if you're the only one. Um, you need a cohort and you need a community and you need it to not be extraordinary. You need to be, it needs to be normal. And, you know, it's funny when I first came in because I'd never had this role before, and they were like, do you want to be chief diversity officer? What do you want the title to be? You know, and I said, I want to be like chief normalcy officer. If we looked like the talent in the population, that would be normal. 
what we're doing now is not normal. Like, I'm trying to get us to normalcy. They nixed the normalcy idea, but because they're like, that's going to confuse people. It's more about representing the the global majority as opposed yeah. to the status quo minority that's, that are so often represented. Totally. And so right? I was like, this is, it would be normal. I want to yeah. be chief normalcy officer. Yeah. So we, we see, you know, with, with uh, the idea of, uh, you know, one being the loneliest number, but it's so often the case for marginalized individuals in the workforce. Let's talk about women specifically in the workforce. How can we support women and foster a culture of inclusion rather than division and competition. There was a perception that the pie was a certain size. And if, and we're going to get one slice, we get one slice only. And I got the slice. And if you show up, you're going to try and take the slice. It's scarcity mentality. Yes, absolutely. And it's, and, and actually we have abundance and having more diversity creates more abundance because you're, market gets bigger, your revenue gets bigger, your company gets bigger, your organization gets bigger, like all of those things. Like having an abundance mindset is really, really important. But I also find that the same thing applies. The like, you know, one's a token, two is a minority, three is a good start. It's really hard to be the only one in the room. I've been the only one in the room a lot. It's really hard. And I also think that the way that everybody can impact this is not just people who are employers and managers and hiring or creating an inclusive you know workplace hopefully which is important you know what everybody can do to make like women more successful in the workplace do your work at home if you live with a woman are you really distributing things equitably in the household or is she exhausted all the time <laughs> You know, it was so interesting. I We had done this survey around work from home and so many women on my team, you know, I saw their responses and it was like, well, would you like to work from home like permanently? Like, you know, so many women wrote some version of, I'd be happy to work from home longer if you can promise me these other people aren't going to be here asking me for lunch, asking me where their sneakers are. Like, and it was really interesting because- I, I just, I found it really intriguing. You know, I had a colleague who he held his baby on a Zoom and everybody's like, oh, you're such a good dad. Look at you. Every woman who's juggling a baby while being on a Zoom meeting because she has no daycare in a, you know, a quarantined shutdown world. Everybody's like, oh, look at her. She's kind of a mess. Like she's like, you know, trying to juggle. And I just thought it was so interesting because Everyone thought that the man who held a baby was a hero and the woman who held a baby was a mess. I'm like, you know what you can do to like promote equality in the workplace? Make sure that the equitable distribution of responsibility at home is there so that this woman is not going home and being like 150% committed to trying to get everything else done because you're not pulling your weight. So that's my like. <laughs> it seems like such a reasonable and obvious hack, and one that I've never heard before. To have that awareness, that mindfulness, and that empathy really implemented into every area of your life, not just uh, you know walking through the doors of your office and turning it on and walking turning it off when you as soon as you go home. No, it's it's like it starts at home too. But I also think it's it's notable that. You know, we were looking at a lot of the effects of the pandemic on women leaving the workforce, right? 
And it's disproportionately women leaving the workforce because they're the ones trying to manage everything else. And they're the caregivers and they're still managing, statistically speaking, still managing more of the housework. And so, by the way, we saw one thing that was about female academics submitted 40% less papers, right? And you're like, we lost we lost all this brain power because these women are probably trying to like manage a household while doing their research because they're working from home and it's just like, it's too much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's often said that we thrive as a team, but we suffer as individuals. How can we remind ourselves of the need for empathy and uh, interdependent support within a team culture? Well, first of all, one of the ways that you can do that if you're a manager or if you're just a, a colleague is creating an environment where being your whole self, and I actually think in a weird way, there's very few silver linings to, you know, a pandemic, right? But one of them is that, you know, having meetings online or in Zoom and like, you know, you and I are in little boxes right now, but we're in the same size box, right? And like everybody's in the same size box. So it's actually sort of an interesting, equitable, like distribution of at least visual power. It's not like there's one person at the head of the table, clearly in control. Like, I think that's kind of interesting. But the other thing is that, you know, I see your plant and your painting in the background and I see your dog and I see your baby. And suddenly you're a more, a more whole person to me. And I think, you know, everyone talks about like bringing your, we want people to bring their authentic selves to work. Well, you can't hide from your authentic self when the dog is barking and the doorbell is ringing and you're trying to eat your lunch while you're, you know, there's like the slight benefit to some of this is that, I mean, I just, I just think in terms of building like trust and empathy, like seeing someone's whole self can be facilitated through work, right? By asking people like, what is your experience with this? How does this feel to you? There's so many ways to get there. Um, but I think that again, one of the weird benefits of a pandemic is is that idea that I can't be a different self because you're actually in my home. That is a a unique moment we have to kind of reset. If people think there's a difference between your real self and your work self, nobody will trust you. Literally being authentic and showing up as your whole self allows people to connect with you on a human level. And I think that engenders trust and empathy and a safer space for everyone to work. I couldn't have said it any better myself. And it's so clear that that's exactly what you're striving to do in your position at Warner Media. And it really is the prerequisite to being able to be to bring your authentic self. At least I can speak for myself. And that in my own lived experiences, I know that trust is built in tiny little moments all throughout the course of the day. And it's only when you build that foundation of trust and safety that I'm that I feel like I'm able to bring not only my my best self, but my whole self to the table. I will say one more thing about this, which is like in our business, right? And you're a creative professional, right? So I think it's even more important in a creative environment because the opposite of creativity is fear. If I don't feel safe and secure and like I can be myself, you're not going to get my best work. 
And you're right. I know that when I'm on set and there's a producer around who is exercising abuse of power and ruling by fear that I don't bring my best work or my best self. How, do you have any do you have any tips or anything to say about identifying these individuals in the workplace, what we do about it when we when we find them um, and how we can you know, how we can speak truth to power and yet uh, do so in a way that we're we're protecting ourselves and um, hoping to, uh, you know, set a foundation of safety in hopes of uh, of uh, preventing others from having to experience the same ills that we're experiencing. Well, I think there are a couple of things, right? One is, you know, we found that a lot of the issues that we've had, whether on set or in a writer's room, are often because the person is not a great manager or they're like, you know, they don't feel confident in what they're doing. And so we started this series this past year called the Equity Mindset for Creative Leaders, and which is about like teaching people how to manage. I mean, most people don't want to be jerks. They just, they're either afraid or they're scared. Oh my God, we're not going to make the day. And like, you know, and so giving people a bit of leadership development opportunity to try and become a better leader and a more effective leader. The other thing is, you know, listen, like it's a very different world. You may have grown up where people yelled to get things done. That may be the way that you were kind of raised professionally, but guess what? That person's going to like videotape you and post it on social media. And then your whole business will be over. What would your message of encouragement or positivity be to future generations of young people or Latinas specifically who are just beginning their careers in the, in the industry? So I would say, you know, there's never been a better time to be who you are than right now. And I would also say someday your grandkids are going to ask you, like, what was it like back when you were a minority? And what are you going to tell them you did? What did you change? I always think about that because like, if you literally look at the census information, it's mind blowing. You're like, oh my gosh, they're going to live in such a different world. Like I love meeting people who, like tell me that they re- I just met a young woman at who writes for Deadline and she's Latina and she's like, oh my gosh, I used to read my mom's copy of Latina when I was like 12 years old and it means so much to me. And she was like, it made me want to get into journalism. And I was like, really? Oh my God. You know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, she was, and of course, after my vanity made me feel old. Um, I was like, that's so cool. Like, I love that this generation is like, yeah, of course we deserve our stories to be told, you know, of course. So that is exciting for me. And I, like I said, there's never been a better time. Come, come be part of it. Lastly, this is something that we ask all of our guests, but you just may be the most qualified person to answer it. What does deep inclusion mean to you? Oh my gosh, deep inclusion. I mean, I, I think that true like equity inclusion and like deep inclusion means to me that your background, your identity, your gender, your parents' income is in no way determinative of your opportunities in this industry or anywhere. When I cannot be limited by that, but only by my own willingness to work and my own talent, you know, that that's when we will have made it. Well, you are the most mindful institutionalist I think I've ever met, Christy Hallberger. Thank you so much for sharing all your time and your wisdom and expertise with us today. It's been an absolute joy. Oh, I'm so happy to see you. What a powerful conversation I had with Christy. 
I know I'll be thinking about her story for a long time to come. But for now, here are three key insights we can take away from the episode. One is a token, two is a minority, and three is a start. I loved this tweet-worthy comment from Christy about promoting real diversity, not just paying lip service to the concept. She noted that while we've made great progress in recent years, there's still a long way to go towards achieving true, deep inclusion. Let her words be the reminder for us all to be looking out for not just the one, but one more. Inclusion in the workplace begins at home. Before addressing issues of diversity in the workplace, take a look at the women and marginalized people in your personal life, including yourself. How are you supporting them? How are you making the world a better place for them? Change begins with self-reflection, and taking an honest look at your inner circle is a great place to start. The opposite of creativity is fear. If people don't feel safe and supported at work, they simply won't be equipped to put their best foot forward creatively. Building a foundation of safety and security in the workplace is an essential step in creating a more diverse workforce. And finally, while Pod is a podcast dedicated to exploring diversity and inclusion in the workplace, we believe it's equally important to acknowledge progress as it is to call out injustices. There are so many people and organizations today that are operating through a lens of empathy and deep inclusion. And the more we focus on these positive aspects, the more they will grow. Because where attention goes, energy flows. Thanks for listening to Includer Pod, the podcast exploring inclusivity, diversity, and empathy so we can all be kinder to one another. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, blog posts, show notes, and more, visit Includer.org. Special thanks to the amazing team of producers who help bring Includer Pod to life, including Jules Ho, L. Carlos, Brittany Ween, Stephanie Andrews, Mackenzie Patterson, and Stacey Orth. That's a wrap on the first ever season of Includer Pod. Thank you all so much for listening and supporting the podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing from our incredible guests and learned some valuable lessons and insights to help make deep inclusion part of your everyday practice. Stay tuned for more thought-provoking conversations next season, which will be dropping in 2022. In the meantime, follow Includer on your preferred social media platform and visit us at includer.org for more content. I'm your host, Jeffrey Boyer Chapman. See you next time.